Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. What is driving all of your employees, but no one is talking about? Well, according to author and digital transformation expert, Steve Prentice, it's fear. The pace of information and the demands on employees to work 18 hours a day have contributed to today's leader having to be a specialist in individualized management. And that management requires that we appreciate and recognize fear in today's rapidly changing workplace. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your host today, Mitch Simon on the West Coast. Unfortunately, due to difficult technical problems, Ginny couldn't join us today, but I am excited to have with us in the studio, Steve Prentice. Steve is a speaker, writer, journalist, and university lecturer who specializes in the future of work. His fourth book is The Future of Workplace Fear, How Human Reflex Stands in the Way of Digital Transformation. And it delves into this one key fact, humans are driven by fear. I'm really excited about this topic, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm great, Mitch. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. And our first question we always ask is, what has surprised you the most over the last two and a half years since the pandemic began? Surprise me the most around people and work. I would say it's the ongoing groupthink that seems to be taking over large amounts of the world, if only through the media. I'm surprised at how quickly people have joined this kind of bandwagon, and it's somewhat concerning, I think. Whoa, tell me more about what groupthink are you thinking about? Well, we're thinking we've observed over the last five years, let's say, significantly increased polarization in terms of political opinion, a significant in any country which to choose really, you know, an us versus them mentality rather than a community mentality. And this seems to have vastly increased, first of all, as social media became a norm. But over the last couple of years, I think we're suffering from a lot of sort of too many rats in a cage type syndrome. And that's what surprised me the most. I expected when the internet came out and when social media came out, this would be the ticket to global awareness. People could learn what they wanted to learn. But we seem to have gone the other way. People have chosen to side with their existing beliefs, opinions, and biases to the exclusion of everything else. And that has surprised me quite a lot. Do you have a theory as to why this polarization has accelerated, especially in the last two and a half years? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with climate, not just simply the increasing heat, but just simply the changes in air quality and the chemicals that people unwittingly consume. You know, even to speak like that makes one sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I just think that we are suffering from an overload of bad stuff that is changing our mindsets. But it could be, you could put all that aside and say it's just simply the pace of communication. The, the pace of information is something that we're not physically prepared to handle. And that's more along the lines of what the book and what my studies are about. We cannot take this much information. And I think this is what's happening is it's spilling out and becoming this polarization that we're seeing. Okay, gosh, I'd love to delve into that more. But first, I really want to get into the book 
Now, your book is, you chose fear. Now, human beings have lots of primary competing drives. We have love, greed, we even have compassion. What made you single out fear as a primary driving force? Most of it has to just do with direct experience. I mean, I've been working in this field for 25 years. I see more people fearful and afraid of their futures, of their jobs, and of change than I do see people walking around, you know, giddily happy about the status quo. That's not a bad thing to say because fear is, I believe anyway, the most predominant and most powerful of the emotions. And emotion is the most powerful of the two sides of our insides. We have a rational, logical side, and we have an emotional side. Emotion always wins. And I can give a simple example of this that doesn't deal with fear. Just think about a purchase that you make, whether it's a pair of shoes or a car or a house. Anything you do there, you will rationalize it and you will look at the price and all the other ancillary costs. But ultimately, a decision comes down to a gut feeling. You know, it's how it feels. And this is how people exist, is we make judgments and we make assessments primarily based around how we feel this will help keep us safe. So this directly translates to the concept of fear in the workplace because people work for a living, they work to live, and anything that poses a threat to that existence is naturally going to be greeted with fear first. So it is the predominant feeling. And I remember back in the early 90s when I started this business, you know, people were afraid of computers. What happens if I lose my document because I don't know how to save it? What happens if somebody's spying on me? Why can't I just go back to how things were with typewriters and pen and paper? The fear of change is natural because it comes down to one single phrase. People will always worry about what the change element will do to me rather than what it'll do for me. It's an immediate defensive reaction. So I want to kind of come up from a different point, Stephen, and help me understand this. You know, when we were all sent home, and for most of us, we are now, you know, spending more time working from home. What I heard from all the pundits and all the media was that, oh my gosh, look at humans, look at them go. They were, you know, one day they're in the office, the next day they're at home and wow, productivity went up and engagement went up. And so it kind of flies in the face of what you're saying that people are fearful of change because didn't they in fact deal well in a mature way with the change that went on? Yes, you're exactly right. Except for one point, uh, we didn't have a choice. We were sent home. So you were there. You were dropped in it with both feet. Let's imagine the other thing. Let's say that COVID hadn't happened. And so a big thing comes around saying, hey, we're thinking about sending everybody home. What do you think? You would get so much pushback from all sides, not only management and senior management, but people themselves. No, I like my job. I like there's things about the office that I do. The change, the concept of going home and having to do it at home with pets and dogs and kids and whatever else going on would have been a concept way too large to grasp. So because it was forced upon us, we basically just grew used to the temperature. It's like, you know, going into cold water, you just get used to it. That's the difference. And because people have now experienced it, the threat, the barrier was lowered. The threat barrier was lowered. And most people or many people said, hey, I can do this. It's the same kind of thing with cell phones. When cell phones first came out, the question was, you know, would you like to have a cell phone? And one of the most common expressions was, well, no, nobody's that important that they need their own phone. You know, what do you need a phone in your pocket for? There's phones everywhere. There's pay phones everywhere. There's an immediate no response to that. And a couple of years later, when people said, and I was working with Nokia at the time, I believe it was Nokia, they were saying, you know, what about if we put a camera in a phone? 
And the immediate response was, no, you don't need a camera in a phone. You have a camera, you have a phone. You don't need to put the two together. No is the natural response to change. So that would be my answer to you is that, yes, if we had been given that choice, the overwhelming response would have been, no, I don't want to work from home. But because we had to do it, we just grew into it the same way we grew into phone ownership and even social media. I mean, social media didn't really have to advertise aggressively to get people on board. People just grew used to it to the point now that they cannot live without it. So that's such an interesting thought that no is a natural response to change, except when there is no other choice. Yep. So when you're forced to go home, boom, you are going to do that. When people are sending you pictures on their phone, you're going to be forced to go, oh, I better use figure out how this camera phone kind of works. I actually worked for Nokia at the time when we were putting cameras in phones. Oh, cool. And, and, and at the time, I was thinking, who needs a camera in their phone? And I always thought a phone and a camera will never be as good as a camera. But yet we did adopt yeah, that. So just tell us the premise of the book before I get into my next question about the five types of fears that occur in the workplace. What had you choose the future of workplace fear versus you know, the future of the workplace and the collaboration and ingenuity and innovation and team meetings? You chose a book called The Future of Workplace Fear. What had you do that? Well, I have to preface that by saying I'm fully in favor of digital transformation and all the great positive things. And that was the term that really picked it up for me because I do a lot of work with cybersecurity and in, in the tech sector. And so digital transformation has been the buzzword of the last few years. And it's a nice, cool term for how we are shifting all our processes into digital, and all the things we use. That's all great. But what would stand in the way of making it work? And that's the engineer in me, I guess. My father was an engineer, and I guess that's what it is. Is Well, let's take this apart and say, okay, your ideas are great, but what is going to be the problem? Where are the things we've got to watch out for before they happen to us? And what I experienced in my career, as I said, is that most people are very fearful of anything that is going to change the status quo and their tenuous hold on basically their living, their livelihood, and they don't want things to change. So given that I was reading, you know, going to conferences, endless conferences on digital transformation, yeah, that's all great stuff. But as you know, if you do not look at the other side, if you do not plan thoroughly the contingencies and all of the constraints, you can run into trouble. And that's exactly what I saw was that if people are afraid, for example, of giving up their treasured password, I mean, you know what the most popular password in the world still is, right, Mitch? It's, it's one, two, three, so four, five, six. Password or is it one, two, three, four, five, six? Yeah, pa both of them. Password and one, two, three, four, five, six and variations of that because they're easy to remember. Nobody wants to have the hassle of, of complicated passwords, especially the new ones now, which are 16 characters of just random yes. punctuation. That's too much. That's too big. That's too much of a hassle. And that, to me, it really just hits it on the head because you can bring in all this wonderfully connected digital stuff. But if one of your employees continues to use one, two, three, four, five, six as their password, then anybody is going to be able to get in. And that's not a hypothetical. That has happened. That happens daily. You know, if your passwords are just two English words stuck together with an exclamation point at the end, hey, that happens too. There are hundreds of millions of computers and people out there just doing that, putting these words together and just blasting it out to every place they can find. So the point is that people don't want the hassle of having to, to get into a new way of working with passwords. And, you know, we're too small of a company. We know no one's going to come after us. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's every company out there is connected to every other company. Right. And that's what people don't want to hear. 
So the goal of the book is not to be a naysayer by any means. It's to be a project manager. The first job of a project manager is to say, okay, what do we seek to do? What assets do we have and what problems are we going to face? And you've got to build those. And that, to me, is the kinds of problems that are going to really derail a digital transformation effort for any company of any size usually comes around in human form. Wow. So what are these fears? Like, what are the top five fears that occur in the workplace? And if you could share with me as a team leader, what is this fear and why should I be so concerned about this fear? Yeah, well, number one, I think really is the fear of losing your job. You know, some people are lucky enough to be entrepreneurs and go out and create their jobs and create their future for themselves. That's a wonderful thing. But most people aren't that fortunate or haven't had the capacity to think about it or to think what they would do. So you get a job, you know, and as soon as you get a job, that becomes the norm. Now you start spending money in accordance with what you make. It's usually slightly more. So this means now I need that job in order to keep paying the bills that I'm generating to match the standard of living that the job is providing to me. The big irony of all that is people who commute two hours a day in their car so that they can pay for their car. You know, it's part of this problem. So all of a sudden, the fear of losing your job becomes paramount because if you can't make those payments, you know, your house, your car, everything else is going to disappear. So that becomes the number one fear. And pretty much everything else basically filters down to that. So if you introduce a new technology to me and say, Steve, now you've got to start working with this password technology or this new whatever. The first thing I'm going to think about is, oh, God, what if I screw up? If I screw this up, what's it going to do for my career prospects here? I'm going to get called in by the manager to say you're not able to do this or whatever. So it all comes down to that. The change represents me being stuck out there, exposed out in the open when I used to have things perfectly in place. People can go off on all kinds of other tangents. They can mistrust technology and believe that it's tracking them. It might not even be technology. It might be if your company is now cutting back two or three floors because half the staff are working from home, you're going to lose your cubicle. And, you know, the job might be just okay, but there's a certain comfort and a certain sanctuary in that cubicle you've had for years. Now it's gone and it's replaced with a hoteling thing where I've got a book a desk for the day. I don't like that. So this all comes back around to if I don't like that and I complain to the boss, then that puts my career in jeopardy. So that is the number one fear is losing that job. And for most people, that is a paralyzing fear. Do most team leaders realize that number one fear, fear of losing my job, is actually driving most or all of their team members, their direct reports? I don't believe they are. I don't believe they do. I mean, there's a lot of managers out there and team leaders who work very hard to try and create great teams and do the right thing. I'm not saying that managers are bad people. However, they have also been you know, placed into a position where their necks are on the line too if they screw up. A lot of people who become managers, if they went to manager school, you know, to business school, then they were, they're taught stuff that is 20, 30 years old, totally out of date. If they weren't, if they were promoted up from the ranks just based on seniority, they're probably not cut out to be managers at all. They're subject matter experts. And I've counseled individuals you know, over the years who are shocked and traumatized by the disappointment they feel about being promoted to a manager because they don't get to do what they love to do. Now they're managing mm-hmm. people. So managers are really saddled with a lot of difficulty. I'm being very sympathetic to them because it's very hard to manage people. And it's very hard to understand them when you also have a whole pile of other stuff to do as well. You know, you're wearing two or three hats. So the short answer is no. I don't think most managers are fully aware of the emotional depth of this problem. 
And even before COVID hit, the future of work, uh, you know, gurus at all the big consulting firms, the one name consulting firms like Deloitte were saying, the future of work is based on empathy, soft skills, where managers need to learn how to be servant managers or servant leaders. They need to know how to communicate actively, listen more, and bottom line, practice the soft skills that allow them to connect with their human beings, with the people that work with them. So yeah, short answer there is that no, I don't think they really realize the depth of this problem. And that's why over the last couple of years, many people have purely left. The great resignation is a real thing. It isn't the theory. It really happened. The future of work is based on empathy. We've been talking about that a lot, and as you have, and it's kind of all out there. And in fact, Jenny and I did an episode on, you know, what would you actually do with this? So if the future work is based on empathy, we didn't get into fear because we hadn't really come across your path yet. How do I, as a manager or even as a team member, how do I empathize with the level of fear that's going on if nobody's talking about it? Because I don't see many direct reports or team members walking into work and going, hey, everybody, this is what I'm scared about today. You know, or, hey, I'm scared about losing my job all the time, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. So how do you empathize with these fears if they're either not spoken about or people are in denial about their fears? Yeah, I would turn that question directly around to the manager and say, what would you do if somebody came in and said, hey, I'm really afraid of losing my job if I screw up with this technology? What would the manager do then? I would expect the manager to say, oh, I didn't know that. Well, let's talk about this and let's see what we can do. So perhaps it's a matter like in many other relationships, right? And it's a relationship between a manager and every individual employee or worker. I don't like the word employee anyway, but a worker, somebody who's trading their skills for compensation. If this conversation hasn't happened, then who's going to be the first one to start talking about it? As a worker slash employee, maybe that person's afraid of bringing those things up because once mm-hmm. again, they're going to look like a complainer. They're going to look like someone who's not a team member. And that's what's always been drilled into people's cultural heads for the longest time. So it may require that the manager take the initiative to say, let's talk about this more. I mean, we've seen positive steps with this with regards to more recognition of mental health issues at work, diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's, which again is, you know, essentially rebranding of trying to get people more legitimately recognized for their differences in the workplace, which is great. So there is a cultural shift towards this. But a manager who is saying, well, maybe one of my fears, just to sort of actually skip ahead onto our list here, a manager's Mm -hmm. fears may be to lose their best people. To which I say, well, if that's what you're worried, then what are you going to do about it? Let's start the conversation. If people are afraid of something, what can we do? Now, if people are afraid of looking stupid with technology because they don't know how to do it and they don't want to screw up and lose all the data of the company by pressing the wrong button, that's a legitimate fear. So let's set up some sort of isolated sandbox type thing, a computer that's in a room that has no connections to the company network and practice just the same way that you teach a child how to ride a bike, right? Both the child and the parent are going to be terrified of that day when bike riding comes along. The parent sees injury and blood everywhere and the child may like to do it, but is afraid to take it on. So how do you do it? In little steps. And that's the kind of thing that managers need to recognize is that if they can become aware that the vast majority of their employees are afraid, afraid of losing their job, afraid of looking stupid because they can't learn something fast enough, afraid of making mistakes, then the onus is upon them to start the process of learning in a far more efficient way than just simply a one day or a one hour workshop, which, you know, is mental overload that will never stick. So let's change the way people are, are trained. I'm just wondering what that looks like. So I'm a manager. I've heard this podcast and I've read your book. How would I go ahead and talk about the things that 
scare people, especially when the thing that scares people is talking about the thing that scares people? Depends on who you're talking to. I mean, if you're talking to the employees, then we can start to establish some kind of thing that says, yeah, out of the you know 40 hour work week, whether you're in the office or working from home, we have to give some of that time over to refueling our culture here. So this isn't to just make happy stuff like, you know, a day out of the golf course, which, you know, can be fun, but far more team building can be done by genuinely walking the walk and saying, yeah, we want to give some time to hearing what people's ideas are, what their fears are, and how we can address them. And showing that they are being heard, that they are being heard and that changes are being planned and made. If that same manager then has to go to their manager and say, this is what I think needs to be done, then they are in the very same position. Now they're looking themselves like a complainer or or rocking the boat, especially to a manager, maybe 10 or 15 years, their senior or their junior, but regardless, not having the same mindset. So we've got to now look at, okay, how can I put this in the context of changing times? The 2020s that we're in right now are not the same as the teens or the noughts or the 1990s. These are new times. And so you can blame the initiative for change on these new times. There is no old normal. This is a new normal in the sense of a brand new, different normal. We've heard, you know, leadership from 1980 is not the same as 2020. Okay, got that. Let's get specific. What, especially in the guise of fears, what has happened over the last, let's say, 20, 30 years in the area of fear, let's just say, that has changed the dynamic of the workplace and then accordingly needs to be changed in the area of management and leadership? What is that big change? Well, I think that it starts with the, the pace of information and the expectation of work. Mm-hmm. Now, because people can bring their work home with them, literally, the expectation is that people are going to continue working into the evening hours, or returning all those emails they couldn't get to during the day. Emails by themselves have become an inflationary issue in the sense there are way too many emails because people like to communicate by email rather than, again, direct live conversation, which is far more productive and time efficient. So because Mm -hmm. the expectation is now that any employee can and should continue working past their official end time for the day, this is inflation, right? The more you charge, the more people have to make to pay for what you charge. This is ergonomic inflation. So there's more information. There is more expectation of information within the same 24-hour constraint. This means, as with any inflationary situation, that becomes the new norm so that meetings and events during the day can put aside things like email and that becomes the individual employee's problem. So that's, I think, one of an example of where what's different now than, let's say, 20 years ago when you would have slept home on the train with a briefcase full of stuff. And in most cases, not open it again. I used to joke about this. It was called taking your work for a walk. You bring it home and you bring it back to the office the next day. The analog, tangible nature was very different. Once you get home, it's okay, I'm home now. But with digital, it's there in in your face on the same device you're using for your home life as well. So that's the primary change is that the floodgates opened and allowed us to be working basically 18 hours a day. And from that, You know, people think, well, now we can get 18 hours of worth of work done per day. No, it has Parkinson's law. Work expands to fill the time available. Here, the negative effect of that happens is that the work is not adding up. It is just expanding without adding extra value. That's what's really changed. Well, that's a great distinction. So I guess you would kind of say in the last three years where it was the expectation. So the expectation of change is that I have emails now, so I could email any time of the day. But it used to be I would you know, still get on the train or get in my car, go to the office, come home. So it used to be I would maybe have an hour on the way there, an hour on the way back. Now you're at your house. You wake up, you should work. During the day, you should work. 
And when you're done with the day of work, you should then go work. And then I'm assuming that the primary fear is I'm not doing enough work. So then I will lose my job. (laughs) Right. So it becomes almost impossible. It's an impossible circle. I'm always going to be losing my job because I'm not working enough. Absolutely. And this is not hypothetical. This is happening all the time. The number of days I can tell you, Mitch, where I'm scheduled to have, let's say, a two o'clock meeting with a particular client or person, and I'm online ready for them and they're running late. Why are they running late? Because their prior meeting is running long. Yes. All the time. Back to back meetings. The culture is one where we just jam in as many meetings as possible. And it isn't like saying, okay, if I can pick up, let's say, as many dollar bills or dollar coins as possible, I'll have more money. Yeah, that would be great if you can pick them up off the floor. But this is not the same thing. Those meetings back to back do not generate the same kind of tangible per minute output. So every single day, that's why I try to get people to meet with me first thing in the morning, because I don't want to be part of that backlog. But the point is that the culture does not support taking 10 minutes between meetings, you know, calling, let's say, 50 minute meetings so that I can take 10 minutes to pause and break and have the permission to leave it at 50 minutes as promised. Instead, things just roll on because people are too afraid to leave because, yeah, it's going to look bad if they leave a meeting while it's still running. That's the problem is that we run this sort of rolling freight train of expectation. If you can handle 20 emails a day, soon you'll be handling 30 emails a day and then it'll be 40. No one stops, for example, to calculate how long each of those emails takes to respond to, even on average. So this is what I wrote a book on time management back in 2005 and then redid it again five years later because the same things are happening. People don't quantify these extraneous tasks. They just become phantom tasks that still have to get done. Whereas back in the pre-internet era, there was a barrier you stepped over, a line you stepped over when you got out of your car or off the train into your home life. And very little is going to interrupt that. If it's a real emergency, the boss may call your home number, but that's a much, much bigger emotional decision to make than just simply buzzing you another text in the middle of the night. We're in an age of inflation, basically. Right. And it used to be, at least I remember in the office where you would have, let's say, a million cubes or a million offices and maybe two conference rooms. There is no way you could actually be in two conferences at the same time because there only was one or two conference rooms. Yes. So I could see your book, the title, The Future of Workplace Fear, How Human Reflex Stands in the Way of Digital Transformation is this digital transformation, this digital infinity of solutions is really getting in the way of what it used to mean to be a human. I wanted to ask you a question when we spoke a little bit before this call as an intro And the one thing that struck me, many things struck me, but you said leadership of the future is going to be about tearing down what holds us up and what holds us back. What did you mean by that when you shared that remark? It was a sort of a two things. One was the physical nature of where we work, what holds us up as a building in which we work. Mm -hmm. We don't need that anymore. There's nothing in the physical workplace that cannot be replicated with a suitably appropriate online presence. You know, not talking about the, the static Zoom meetings that everyone's been through, but there's a far better system than that. But it's also about, yeah, holding us back, the things that hold people back from innovation, from dynamic communication. Again, because we've got this nature that I'm the manager, I'm the boss of you, and you got to do what I say. That is the kind of rule that must be replaced with, uh, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what we need to do. I turn to the employees and say, how do you think we should build this? How can we make this happen? 
So it becomes much more Socratic. And this, again, is not necessarily New Age stuff. I mean, the Japanese were doing this with Kaizen and with the whole Toyota production system back in mm -hmm. the 1960s. But it's still very an antithetical to the North American work ethic, which is go, go, go at all costs. And not only North America, lots of Europe, too. So, yeah, we've got to take down the things that are holding up the company or holding up the organization, the standards and the protocols and basically the biases that have been holding up our organization at least for the last 40 years and replacing them with a much more Socratic awareness that individuals are now at work here, not a team, an employee base. And once again, this is not me making up buzzwords for the sake of it. We're talking about the fact that human beings in this era, for the same reason, because of social media technologies like Netflix and everything else, these are highly personalized services that we receive and expect. You know, you order on Amazon, you get your stuff. It's very personalized and focused on you. So we expect the same thing in our lives, in our professional lives, that rather than being one of a group of people who work here, I'm an individual, and I'm going to expect individual management the same way that the customer service department at any other company is going to give me, or I'm expecting. And if they don't give it to me, I will leave. And people are leaving the workplace for the same reasons. This condemns a company to lose their best people if they're not adequately served like customers. And that's why, once again, I go back to the notion of separating the term employee and replacing it with something else more transactional. Someone who works for a company is trading their skills and experience for compensation. They're not being given a job. This kind of mindset with the management's focusing individually on each person is a huge demand on a manager's time. Yes, but that's what a manager is there for, in my opinion, to help guide this team. But it's not a mass of people like the crew of a slave ship all rowing in the same direction. These are individuals that need to be addressed individually. And that, I think, will be the role of the manager to help the individuals do what they pride themselves in being able to do. Most people who work are very proud of putting in a good day's work and stretching their skills. They're not slackers. They are really wanting to show what they can do. And once again, you get that from the comments, for example, at Glassdoor. Where are the best places to work? It's always supportive environments, supportive managers. It isn't about a big paycheck. It's about a culture of support and engagement across the layers of management to the working group. That makes for great companies. And they're the ones that are destined to succeed in this new decade. Yeah. So I would almost want to reframe this a little bit. Leadership of the future is going to be tearing down what holds you up and what holds you back. Let's just state another way. I love your phrase, individualized management. And I think in the area of you know connecting the dots of what holds you back, the leader of the future is going to be able to actually build that trust and relationship so that I can actually say, you know, what's holding me back right now is this fear and that fear and this fear and that fear. They might not make any sense, but in fact, that's what's going on with me right now. Yes. And then my manager, just like my Domino's pizza, which will be half pepperoni and half not pepperoni and, you know, and half cheese and not cheese. My manager will be able to serve my mentoring or my leadership or my coaching in a very individualized way. That's what the digital transformation has done is basically be able to serve you up, you know, the Nike tennis shoes with the different laces. I mean, just 100% individualized. Okay, great. We could talk about this forever. Why don't you help us understand how can we find you? If we want to know more information on your book, on individualized management, on time management, on all of these great ideas that you're working on right now. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah. People can find me at steveprentice.com. That's uh, just P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. If we were meeting in person and I handed you my business card, you'd see that my business card has nothing on it except that. No address, no phone number, no fax machine, just simply steveprentice.com because that's where I am. Great. Well, Steve, it's a pleasure meeting you. 
And it's been really informative and uh, I'm less scared now. Good. So, Happy to hear you. that. Thank you so much. So thank you, Steve. And again, Jenny, I'm sad that we weren't able to have you on Team Anywhere today. But if you've loved this episode or any other episodes that we've done, please share this episode and others with your friends, your colleagues, people that you work with. And we look forward to seeing you next time on our next episode of Team Anywhere. Anywhere.